welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome to another webinar with Rhea Wong. I am here today with two esteemed guests, Dr. Peter Keogh and Carlin Cowan. We are talking about the issue of the rise of anti-Asian racism in the wake of COVID, though I think we'll talk a little bit about how this is nothing new under the sun. So welcome to both of you. Question for both of you, could you just speak a little bit about your own career and sort of what drew you to this particular issue of uh, being activists in the Asian American space? Peter, let's start with you. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to participate in this very important um, and timely webinar. I self-identify as a Cambodian American researcher and scholar and strategist. And you know, my calling to this work uh, really started at a, a very, very early age. Uh, my parents are survivors of the Cambodian genocide in which every member of their immediate family had been brutally murdered um, under the Khmer Rouge. Um, and we, well, they moved to the United States um, and that's where I was born. And then we uh, sort of, well, I grew up in Texas and, and it was through the confluence of both um, the, the genocidal trauma and then being a brown man of color growing up low income uh, in Texas, experiencing different and multiple instances of different levels of racism from structural and institutional racism to very direct and personal racism that called me to this work. Um, and then eventually, as I went along the pipeline, um, graduated from high school and went on to college, uh, I continued to witness different levels and different manifestations of structural racism, but just in very subtle, but yet very powerful, very lethal ways directed at Asian Americans. And, and, and it was through that those multiple experiences where I said, okay, something is happening and we need to apply more like rigorous research around it so that we can build out the evidence base to advocate effectively for our communities. What I will say is that, you know, my research now sort of falls uh, along sort of three verticals, right? So um, the bigger picture uh, research is, you know, K to 12 education policy where I kind of connect the dots for folks to support, you know, like federal, state, and district education policies. But then, you know, um, the other side of the work is looking at how do we build a very strong evidence base to then better support and advocate for Asian Americans because, and I'll end with this, because the Asian American narrative, one, is extremely outdated when we think about the model minority myth, and two, the demographics of our people uh, has changed dramatically to the point where we can no longer whitenize them because doing so uh, uh, prevents them from, from having access to resources that they need and deserve both in education and the workforce. So that's my calling. Thanks so much, Peter. Carlin, same question to you. Thanks, Rian. Thanks for inviting me. I think for me, it's always really been a question about Asian American political power and building the political voice in our communities. Um, I am a mixed race Filipino American. My mom grew up in the Philippines under the Marcos regime and um, all of the traumatic experiences that, that went along with that, having friends that were disappeared, family members the same. And when she moved to the United States, we settled in North Carolina and I grew up in a pretty tight knit Filipino diaspora community there. And you know, one of the, the pervasive lessons that always came from that experience was like, oh, you know, be quiet, be careful of what might happen if you speak out too much. And that led to me doing some community organizing right out of college, particularly with 
Filipino and Hmong and Tibetan immigrant communities. And there was that same pervasive idea of like, let's not speak up, let's not speak out. And we've seen that, you know, all over the place when it comes to Asian American political representation, when people talk about voters of color, Asian Americans are never even mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so when, you know, I've worked in policy advocacy for the last couple of years around progressive political issues in New York, and when I had the opportunity to come to work at CPC three years ago, we're a social services agency working with mostly Asian American community members um, from, from 25 different countries. And to really begin to connect that work that we do in social services with actually beginning to build Asian American political power and representation in New York State, that was really uh, what called to me. Beautiful. Thank you for doing that work. So question for both of you. The kind of theme that keeps coming up for me is this idea of invisibility. We don't often learn about the history of Asians in this country. Uh, and I'm wondering, Peter, if you could just speak as a scholar to what is, what's up with that? Like what's up with this invisibility in the history and the invisibility today in the cultural conversation? Yeah, great question. You know, I always say it's not just invisibility, it's, it's erasure, because on some levels we're completely erased from the narrative, uh, as you're seeing with COVID-19. I think to really understand what's happening right now, um, you, you have to see it along sort of uh, two sort of viewpoints. So on the one hand, um, th there's the crisis, right? There's, there's, there's anti-Asian racism as we're experiencing it right now in the midst of COVID-19 through both verbal uh, and physical attacks and cyberbullying, which as um, I'm sure you two know, uh, have skyrocketed just within the last month and a half to two months. Um, as documented by Stop AAPI Hate, you know, uh, Next Shark and other sources, AAAJ. But that viewpoint and thinking about it from a very uh, um, a momentary place, meaning that we're only thinking about it right now, has its limitations. We need to broaden our scope and understand this along a, along a historical continuum that is the United States. We have to, and the, argument, the argument that I make is that we have to recognize that anti-Asian racism uh, or racism in general is um, at, the, at the origins, at, at the foundation, at the roots of this country, and I say that with a lot of love for this country, right? We have to recognize that this country was founded upon genocide of Native Americans. It's written in, in our textbooks, although not to the extent that I would like to see it. Um, in addition to that, we have to recognize that uh, Black people were imported from a very different continent in very subhumane ways through slavery then we have to also recognize that even during Reconstruction, which came after the Civil War to so-called free Black people, Black people continue to experience uh, uh, very harsh forms of discrimination in the workforce, in the military, in housing, um, and in society. They couldn't even go to parks in, in, in full freedom. So to understand anti-Asian racism, we have to understand the full extent of this. Now, to focus on Asians in particular, Anti-Asian racism through my research, which I've been doing for over 15 plus years, you can start to see it kind of emerge around the mid 1800s, okay? And this was um, at this time, as you, as, as you can recall through your history books, um, this is when um, 
Uh, the Transcontinental Railroad was being built. There was a huge importation of Chinese immigrants who were coming into the United States working at very low wages, working very long hours. And then about two decades after Transcontinental Railroad, Railroad had been completed, which was, by the way, a major building block for the U.S. economy, then we started seeing a very different view towards Chinese people, hence the, um, the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which barred uh, um, Chinese people in particular from entering our country. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the weeds of this. I'm going to fast forward. And what I will say is that there are over 20, at least 20 pieces of, of federal legislation that have been directed primarily uh, at the Asian American community, primarily and in addition to the Asian American community throughout the history of the United States. The, the, the ones that are spoken about the most obviously uh, is the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which lasted for a very long time. Then you had uh, uh, just a host of other events like World War II and then the Japanese encampment and so on and so on and so on. Fast forward to, 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 to today, COVID-19 in particular is a very unique situation because of the number of people infected by the virus. And, you know, and so we have to remember that anti-Asian racism is one form of, of hardship that we're experiencing, but we have to think about the health, um, the health issues that are arising, the mental health issues that are arising, and then of course the economic issues that are arising as well. So you put all that together, and then the invisibility and the erasure that comes with being an Asian American, this is why we're seeing what we're seeing today, right? 900% increase in cyberbullying. Uh, we're seeing women three times more likely to, to be attacked, like, you know, your situation, Rhea. Uh, and then we're also seeing that, um, you know, since a month and a half ago, 700 plus new cases were being reported, primarily out of California and New York. So invisibility, erasure, it's not just something that's happening now. You have to look at and look at it across a longer historical continuum of racism in general. Yeah, you you opened up a whole lot of things there. Um, one thing that I have been thinking about of late, and Carlin, I'd love for you to take the lead on this question is, you know, as folks working in the social justice sector uh, on behalf of lots of communities of color, I'm struck by the fact that the conversation about race in this country is often so black and white. Uh, in particular, you know, we're, we're all reading the terrible things that happened to Ahmaud Arbery recently, a long line of young black men who have been brutalized and um, murdered in this country. And so I guess I'm just wondering, how do we sit with this all knowing that like, there, is, there are acts of racism against all sorts of folks of color and at the same time holding two things true of like, we must stand there and also stand amongst other folks of color. Yeah, that's a great question for this time. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that is really important to keep in mind as we're talking about the rise in anti-Asian and anti-Asian American racism that we're seeing right now during COVID-19 is to, you know, also hold it in the context of anti-Black racism and the history of anti-Black racism, which, you know, Peter really spoke to in the United States. And to, to understand that the experience of, of anti-Asian racism is very different than the experience of, of racism that Black Americans have, have faced throughout the history of the United States. And also acknowledge that, you know, anti-Blackness in the Asian American community is a very real and pervasive issue that even during these times, we really have to be 
committed to undoing and fighting within our own community. Something that I think is always really important, and you know, Peter is really the expert here, is but to is to think about the historical context and what that means in the way that like Asian Americans are really placed in the community. And one of the things that I think about a lot is the origin of the, the model minority myth. And something that Erica Lee said about that is how, you know, the origin of the, the model minority myth was actually as Asian Americans were placed as opposed to black Americans. And she described Asian Americans as being politically silent and ethnically assimilable. And that's, you know, a lot of where I drew what I spoke to earlier, the, the desire to build that political voice. And so, you know, Asian Americans have almost always been seen as this model minority because we have been thought of as politically silent of a group that can assimilate of, you know, the potential junior partners to white supremacy. And that's always in the context as juxtaposed to black and brown Americans. And what we see as a result of that is essentially pitting communities of color against each other, right? And so we are forced to fight with other communities of color for, for scraps instead of really working to dismantle these systems of racism and white supremacy together as partners. And it's moments like these during COVID-19 where we see how much that status that Asian Americans are granted as the model minority is really provisional. Um, and that it can be taken away and at any moment, and that's really actively what's happening right now. But I think that unless we really examine the, the root of our status as people of color and our role in building solidarity with other communities of color, with black and brown folks, then we kind of get trapped in that model minority myth. Yeah, I do, and, and lots of great points, uh, Carly. Thank you so much. I do want to respond to um, um, the, this notion of anti-blackness within the Asian American community, which is extremely real, very real about that. Uh, what, what I will say though, is that there's a complexity to that argument as well. Um, and that complexity is, if we're talking about invisibility and erasure, uh, the culture and invisibility and, and erasure within America really stems from, she's right, the model minority myth. But if you unpack that to more, what you see is that this notion of white adjacency, meaning that Asians are often compared to whites, then pitted against Blacks, Latin, Latinx, and other minorities. That is a narrative that is uh, a prime to be sort of disrupted and dismantled by researchers like myself. Why? For a number of reasons. One, the Asian American community is extremely diverse. We have to recognize that under the larger Asian American umbrella, you have about 24 ethnic subgroups speaking multiple languages, bringing lots of different historical contexts, some moving into the United States as doctors, as lawyers, as engineers, or a PhD students at MIT, and others like my parents pushed out because of political persecution and genocide, right? And so when you enter the United States, you enter a, a very different world, right? You either have resources or you don't. And, and if you don't have resources, you're pushed into uh, this sort of dark corner of America known as, uh, as, as intergenerational poverty, right? And so I'm saying all of this is beca because this narrative of, of a black and white America needs to be dismantled, and, and particularly in the context of Asian Americans. And I say that because the demographics of Asia, of, of the Asian American community is shifting so dramatically that now we're having conversations about this notion of whitenizing or blackenizing Asians. In other words, you either fall into a category of being the model minority, in other words, you are an exemplar of academic and financial excellence, or 
you are uh, a high school dropout, you're in gangs, and, and, and all of that is a result of your unwillingness to work hard going back to the model minority. My point here is that this notion of a black white America needs to be complicated so that we talk about what a black and brown America uh, uh, looks like for Asian Americans. And I think doing that will help us to disrupt an invisible and an, 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 uh, an, um, a narrative of invisibility and, and, and of erasure, if that makes any sense. Carlin, I wanted to talk a little bit about something you brought up with respect to political power and political agency. And I think what is really interesting to me in all of the presidential campaigning is no one is really talking to the Asian American community as a force. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you see uh, Asians being politically active and why is it that there is this notion that Asians are apolitical? Yeah, the notion that Asians are apolitical has been such a huge part of, of the lack of our political power. And it's almost this, like chicken and egg situation, right? Like which came first, because what what we see is that Asian Americans do have in general a low voter turnout. Although actually in the 2018 midterms, we had the highest growth in voter turnout of any um, racial and ethnic group. And we were actually critical voters in races like Virginia where the growth in Asian American political turnout led to some of the landslide wins that we saw in, in Virginia in 2018. But because Asian Americans are not typically thought of as being a politically engaged group, candidates, parties, community-based organizations don't necessarily spend time reaching out to us. Two-thirds of Asian Americans are never reached out to by a political party, by a candidate, or by even a community-based organization in an electoral cycle. And when we are never reached out to, then we get the message, my voice doesn't matter. And then you get that dominant narrative in the media that's like, oh, you know, the voters of color, X, Y, and Z, and then you see the listing for black voters and Latinx voters. And it's like, we don't even exist, even though we're the fastest growing population in the United States. Um, and that's where I think that it's really critical for community-based organizations that are working within our community to do that political outreach, and particularly in the language people feel most comfortable in. You know, we've been really lucky to work political outreach to turn out voters. We're a 501c3, so it's mostly voter education, nonpartisan work. Um, but through that, we've been outreaching with our community members and particularly engaging our young people who are so excited about getting politically engaged right now. And they've been doing voter turnout calls. They've been registering their parents and families um, because they feel the desire to build that political power for that generation. And I think that, you know, what it comes down to then is like when people feel like their voice matters, they want to seize that political power. And that's what we're seeing with, with our young people right now. So I'm going to uh, turn it to kind of the nitty gritty tactical right now. So, you know, we're on this call because we know that anti-Asian racism is on the rise. And, you know, Peter, you know, I've talked about this, like I was personally uh, a target of harassment in my local grocery store in downtown Brooklyn, like 2019. So obviously if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. And I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit to what can folks do if they are witnessing acts of racism, whether it's against Asians or otherwise, um, and, and what can one do if one is a target of racist acts? So I, I, you know, I'll speak to um, you know, what, what folks can do now and then what folks should be doing after COVID-19 sort of, for lack of a better word, is eradicated. But I'll let Carlin speak to the more specifics around the training since that's her, her line of work. 
Uh, what I will say is that I, I'm gonna, I'm sort of like a broken record here, right? There are two things happening simultaneously. So there's COVID-19, the immediate crisis. So if something happens to you, right? If you're harassed uh, verbally or you're physically attacked, um, there are things you can do. I mean, there's a, there, there's a, a, a compendium of resources that I've put together uh, from the Asian Pacific American Library Association and the um, American Library Association uh, for Diversity uh, Literacy. Uh, and, I, and, and Rhea, I hope you can share that with your participants after this call. It's a very long list of very well thought out resources for different situations, including uh, reporting bullying. But if, if anything happens to you, you know, what I've been telling folks, and Carlin can probably speak to this better, but what I, can, been, what I have been telling folks is that you can report it anonymously to stop AAPI hate. Um, and they have been doing probably one of the best uh, record keeping of, of, of documenting um, verbal and physical assaults uh, in addition to uh, cyberbullying that happens across different spaces. So at, um, out in public and parks, at, even in the work, workplace, it's anonymous. So, you know, there shouldn't be any fear in terms of reporting. Um, and Stop AAPI Hate has been, been doing a marvelous job and, and then reporting in almost real time uh, what's happening to this country. So I would encourage folks to do that. But, in, but, but, the, but the issue, what I, which is what I was trying to argue from the beginning, uh, isn't momentary, it's systemic. Like we have to think about how do we deal with anti-Asian racism beyond those momentary sort of harassments, which are very serious. Like you have to take it seriously, right? But once things sort of calm down, things cool down, the economy opens up, what happens to our community? Right? Are we going to get brushed under the rug like SARS 2003, like Vincent Chin back in the 1980s? Uh, and, and I can go uh, down the historical path. We, we need to, as, the, as a community, uh, as Asian Americans and our allies, we need to change and shift our consciousness around what Asian Americans really entail. Who are we and why and how do we incorporate our voices and our narratives in a very complex way into that larger narrative, whether it's white, black, or black, brown. That is not happening. To me, that is a more dangerous place for our community right now. And so, you know. But Carlin, can you talk to us about what are some actual tactics that folks can use when facing these sorts of uh, attacks and, and harassment? So, you know, we've seen a huge rise, as, as Peter mentioned, in terms of reported harassment. But we also know that there is a lot of, of daily harassment that's going on that doesn't even go reported, right? You know, Asian Americans are really on the front lines of this crisis right now. We're the essential workers that are, you know, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, delivery workers, especially in New York, um, e-bike delivery workers, the grocery workers, warehouse workers, social workers, and experiencing daily harassment as we're kind of going about trying to manage this crisis. And we've had community members reporting, you know, being harassed verbally, being spat on the subway. One of our community members was the victim of the acid attack in Brooklyn. And I know these things are hard to hear, but it's also important to name these really real incidents that are happening right now. And I do think that reporting is incredibly important. That allows us to really push um, with our elected officials and with our government, the scale of what's going on right now and push them to take action. We also know that, you know, a couple of things. Number one, that there are a lot of folks that are scared or are uncomfortable to report for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. 
So how can we make sure that folks feel supported and safe and encouraged to report to resources like Stop API Hate or if you're tuning in from New York, the New York Commission on Human Rights. Um, but we also know that reporting doesn't necessarily help in the moment itself, right? And if we are either experiencing harassment ourselves or if we are bystanders to harassment, there are very real things that we can do in that moment to actually help with the situation. And we at CPC are working with Asian Americans Advancing Justice and Hollaback, um, who traditionally does uh, gender-based harassment workshops to do a bystander intervention training that is around API discrimination during COVID-19. Mm -hmm. They actually did a similar training right after 9-11 for um, Muslim and South Asian Americans. Um, because what we really see is that a lot of folks, when they see these incidents of harassment going on, want to help and support, but don't necessarily know how. Mm -hmm. And when people are the victims of harassment, basically 80% of people that were the victims of harassment report that they wished that somebody had helped out in the moment, but only 25% report that somebody did. And it's not that folks don't necessarily want to help out, but they either don't know how or they don't necessarily feel safe or don't know where to start. And so signing up for one of these trainings by, you know, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Hollaback, and then our partners in New York CPC, along with Asian American Federation, can really help give some tangible ways. We go through how to assess a situation, um, you know, to see if somebody is being harassed and make contact with them. And then we go through the five Ds of bystander intervention, and those are distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. And those are different ways that, depending on where you feel comfortable and feel safe and understanding that our gender identity, our race identity, our privilege, and the, the current situation that you're in all make a difference in terms of how you can intervene. It gives you real tangible strategies for how you can actually support somebody that is going through this um, and actually helps you practice them. So you can go on the website and register. We're working on an additional training that's a, that's a conflict de-escalation training for when there are even more escalated situations. And that is something that, that we can do to kind of really tangibly help support folks and help build power within our own communities uh, to intervene at this time. Yeah, thanks so much, Colin. I actually took the Hollaback training last night and I thought it was really great because in my mind, there, it was sort of like a dichotomy. It's like I either ignore it or I rush in and try to be the hero, which can often also make you the target. So what was nice about the strategy is like there are interim things that you can do to de-escalate the situation. Right now, I'm going to kick it over to Mr. Ron Rapatalo, who is a Mr. AAPI himself. Ron, uh, if you want to unmute yourself and chime in here, I know you have had a long history of being uh, an activist in the community. I'm wondering if you have any additional thoughts that you can add to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I've been talking about this um, with, with Peter, amongst many others in the community and friends of mine that consider allies across the rainbow spectrum. So, you know, the thing that comes to mind, you know, for what I'm reading, especially, you know, on social media is, you know, the sense that you know, what has the API community done for other communities of color lately narrative, right? And so mm -hmm. I've seen folks on LinkedIn and friends of friends comment with the rise in anti-Asian racism, mm -hmm. now you know what it feels like. Yeah. Or why should we have your back? Mm -hmm. You know, because where was the API community during Black Lives Matter, amongst other things, right? And the, I mean, 
I don't want to, you know, throw people under the bus. I can think of particular posts I've read in the last like two weeks mm-hmm. in that regard, right? And it, it pains me, right? Because certainly from my perspective, right? Um, in my own acculturation, it, it's just, I understand the pain of that. Like I, I really do, like from, from a strong empathy standpoint, but at the same time, I think if we're all activists in this space, no matter what our identity formation is, the honest truth is racism hits us all, right? Even it's white folks, <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? In different ways, right? And so I think when I hear narratives like that, that's the thing that pains me. And I think I certainly struggle in having that conversation with folks, right? Because, you know, for a number of different reasons, right? Am I going to go after another person of color because of stuff they're saying online? No, because I don't, I don't personally like to do that, right? You know, maybe one-on-one to have a conversation. So that's the, the thought that, that mm. I'm having right now is that, you know, feeling of we empathize with you, but I'm not going to go out of my way to have your back. <laughs> I feel like you should move into my guest bedroom at some point. <laughs> um, uh, Ron's a great ally and, and I really appreciate him. Um, but he raises a very, a very important and very timely question. You know, it's what, what have we done for others uh, during these moments of hardships? Um, and and uh, it's an important question, but I think we need, it's time to break it down. Um, and the reality is that, um, as I've noted before, the Asian American community is extremely complex. And there are often two dominant narratives within the Asian American community, multiple others, but two dominant national narratives in the Asian American space. But only one uh, gets airtime. Can you guess which one that is? It's one in which Asians are, are white adjacent. The reality is that when you look and read local grassroots media, Asian Americans are, believe me, are actively involved and talking about Black Lives Matter and addressing state-sanctioned violence against Black boys and men. In fact, I mean, I'm a Cambodian American, but I ran one of the biggest boys and men of color project in the United States through the University of Pennsylvania. You didn't hear my voice. You didn't hear the fact that I was a Cambodian American doing this for other races. And in, and in private, and in private, I would say to my colleagues, well, what about us? I'm here standing in solidarity with you publicly and privately, but what about us? And guess what ends up happening? It falls on deaf ears. So the point that I'm making here is that we need to be careful and playing into the dominant narrative of Asians being white because that narrative makes it seem as though Asian Americans don't care when the reality is that, is that the younger Asian Americans are leaning towards social justice. It might not make it to mainstream media, but they're doing so. And, and, but, but to your point, Ron, to your point, Asians who benefit from whiteness tend to be very quiet around issues that, uh, or hardships that impact communities of color. You're, you're right to call that out. And why? Who knows? I mean, Carlin said is it, it's a chicken or the egg situation. And this is a question that I've been asking myself over and over again. Are Asian Americans silent because we have gone through decades and centuries of being treated like trash and subhuman and, 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 and erased and invisible to the point where we have ingrained ourselves to this normalcy of silence in order to exist? Is it really assimilation or is it survival, quite frankly? We don't know. We don't know. All I know is that we have learned to adjust to the American way of life. 
So I think we need to send a little bit more love to our people, but at the same time, uh, uh, encourage them to speak up and speak up because that silence, it's, it's really hurting the community and it's hurting other people of color, by the way. Jane Nevins has a question. Jane, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Hi, thanks for this great presentation. Um, Peter, earlier you mentioned a couple of stats, uh, including 700 new cases, but sev can you clarify 700 new cases of, of what? So I was referring specifically to uh, a report that was recently released by Stop AAPI Hate. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, Jane, but it's basically a website that was started by uh, Professor Russell Jung out of the San Francisco State University and others, uh, other organizations. Uh, and what this website does, so that's stop, AAPI hate. And what this website does is that it allows you to not only report incidences, physical assaults, verbal harassments, cyberbullying. Um, it doesn't, I mean, not only does it allow you to, uh, to report it uh, anonymously, but um, Professor Jung and his team uh, then uh, releases a report uh, on all the data that has been shared with him. So the 700 comes from that particular report and the 700 refers to the number, the collective number of uh, verbal harassments and physical assaults and other uh, um, um, incidences that have been reported. So 700 in totality. Question coming in from Carlos, and I think, Carlin, this is a good one for you. How can folks who are not Asian support the AAPI community, and in particular, folks that are undocumented? That is a, a great question and a, and a really important one. Thank you for, for asking. I think that particularly when we think about folks that are undocumented, one of the interesting things is that a lot of times when we think of undocumented, we think of the Latinx community, and that means that a lot of the policymaking and advocacy is focused on that community. But in the reality of it, one in seven Asian Americans is undocumented and we have a, a huge undocumented community here. And what we know is that, you know, our undocumented community members are being left out of federal relief. We had um, one daycare family of 24 children and so therefore 24 families that we work with in Queens. Um, and just this is one example um, of that family, 20 out of 24 family members um, lost jobs within a two week span in March. And less than half of those families qualified for federal relief because of their immigration status. And that means that they're also not qualifying for unemployment insurance at state level and there is just really um, very few options for them. And so, you know, what I would say is um, supporting community relief funds for undocumented community members, a lot of organizations like CPC, other Asian American organizations in, in New York and then really across the states are doing community relief funds um, to provide assistance directly to our undocumented community members. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we give our government a pass, right? And we actually need to keep pushing and advocating for uh, the government to take responsibility for all of our residents, regardless of status. And I think that, you know, that is a, a tangible and important thing that other organizations, other individuals can do and support Asian American community members during, during this time. Great, thanks. I have a question coming in from David J. David, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Sure. Um, I work with an organization called the Center for Humane Technology. Um, I work directly with the trust and safety teams from several large tech platforms. Uh, would love to hear more about the 
nature of the cyberbullying that you all are seeing in your reports? Are there particular platforms it's happening on? What kind of forms of it's, is it taking? Are there uh, tactics or resources that you all see as helpful or effective for helping combat it? So uh, there, there, there's been um, actually quite a few uh, cases um, of cyberbullying that have been reported. And uh, what uh, Stop AAPI Hate, and then there was um, another um, um, IT company out of Israel uh, that have been documenting uh, cyberbullying, and what they found was that there have been 900, a 900% increase in cyberbullying targeting Asian Americans in particular, and this was um, on like gaming platforms, so like Minecraft, and you know how there's like the what, what we call the Web 2.0, so people are commenting, so a lot of uh, the cyberbullying is happening there, so like really kind of generic stuff, right, calling people chink and like using really harsh language to to address Asian Americans. So um, has there been like a, a rigorous research study around um, cyberbullying as it pertains to Asian Americans in the context of COVID-19? The answer is no. Um, do we need a study? Absolutely. So what I will say to you, um, sir, is that the, the, the numbers that I'm seeing is simply like a descriptive statistic of what's happening. And, 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 and if you want more information, again, Unfortunately, I keep going back to Stop AAPI Hate, although AAAJ and others are doing great work, but I find Stop AAPI Hate to be very comprehensive uh, and very kind of um, 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 rapid in their response to reporting. So I would certainly point you in that direction. Here, I'm actually going to call out uh, one of my former students, Kat, to talk about what she's witnessing uh, amongst the younger generation. So Kat, do you want to unmute yourself and share a little bit about what you're seeing in your part of the world? Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Kathleen Yao, and I am a former Brave New York student, um, and I'm a senior studying environmental studies and with a minor in art history at Franklin Marshall College. And um, last year, I was an intern for OCA National, so I got a peek of how what was happening behind the scenes in terms of public policy and advocacy, and it was really important for me as a young Asian American, as a young Asian American, to see that kind of work because. I didn't know that was happening. Um, and so I would like to see more co collective action among Asian Americans because I've seen it with my school. There were a lot of racial incidents that happened within my four years. And there is um, last, last year, there's three incidents that happened in a row. And so the Asian American community um, was able to partner up with the Black Student Alliance and other and um, and other uh, racial groups to advocate on our behalf. And because of our efforts, we are now in the process of gaining a new vice president of diversity in the schools to help create better inclusivity and equity efforts in a predominantly white, predominantly white institution. And so. I was, I was also at the OCA National Convention last year, and I saw how there are a lot more older AAPIs, mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot of younger AAPIs. So trying to make other young people be aware of what's happening on a national platform for advocacy and policy initiatives would be really helpful. And this is all going back to bringing funding to API communities because of the model minority myth. And I recently wrote my senior capstone paper about um, the 
AAPI representation in the environmental field and how we don't have a lot of representation because the model minority myth skews people's perception of us and therefore we have not been properly represented in research uh, pro programs or receiving funding. So hmm. one of the recommendations I suggested was to one, uh, bring awareness to the model minority myth and then to gain direct funding and resource support to environmental justice communities that are predominantly AAPI. Thank you, Kat. I'm so proud of you. I can't believe you're a senior. Carlin, I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, which is like, how do we support the younger generation and their activism and helping them to stand uh, with folks to change policy and to make these issues known? And I mean, honestly, like, the, the young people are the ones that just give me so much hope. And I feel really old saying that, <laughs> um, but like when we just had our, our city advocacy day where we were talking to elected officials about um, the issues that are impacting Asian American communities right now during COVID-19 and our young people were the ones leading the meetings. You know, they have such sharp analysis around um, issues of race and class and the history of white supremacy and capitalism and systems of oppression in the United States. And they are really focused on organizing and building political power um, within our communities. So I, I don't even want to say what they need for support because they already, you know, our young people already know what they need and we're just here to help them however they can and just let them lead the way. And I can't wait until they are all of our elected officials and our, you know, CEOs and our nonprofit executives, like we will be in a better world for it. <laughs> yeah. Can I say something because Please. that was such a powerful um, um, commentary from Kat and, and Carlin. But Gad, I have to say uh, that I'm so proud of you. I really want to say that as, as a parent myself, I really, um, Carlin's right. You just bring so much hope to the work that even I do. Um, and trust me, it, sometimes it is a very <laughs> lonely road. Um, so, so keep up the hard work. And there's going to be lots of mountains of, of happiness and lots of mountains of just disappointment as you start to unpack issues of racism and representation. But just, just keep that fire that you have. Keep it going. Um, and so thank, thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. I, I do want to respond to a few points that you've made because you've said a few things that I think were really important. So one, um, you know, I'm very familiar with OCA National. Um, in fact, I was invited to speak at one of their national conferences and you're absolutely right to point out that there is, um, I think, a lack of diversity around not just race or ethnicity, but, you know, age. Um, and that, I think that says something about not just the organization, but the movement. Um, the question I think you were really asking is where, why aren't young people showing up? And, and to me, I don't think it's a lack of willingness from young people. It might be the way in which OCA is mobilizing to recruit young people to those spaces. So just, you know, just, just know that it's not API youth that aren't interested, but it might be the other way around. Okay, so just remember that. The other, the other thing that's really important is this notion of raising awareness for what? Um, and I'm so proud of you for writing that capstone. You know, uh, you know, I didn't even write my <laughs> uh, capstone on race and, and equity until I got to, 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 to college. But what I will say, and you're right to point out two issues. So one is raising awareness around the model minority myth, which um, uh, at the heart of it, um, 
is the root cause of anti-Asian racism. So that's number one. But number two, we need to know that it was born out of um, um, T65 mm-hmm. uh, immigration law that was pushed in. And it gets very complicated, so I won't get into that. But at that very moment, it was the model minority myth was really a political instrument to pit racial minorities against each other. And then eventually to say, hey, Asians are the math whiz kids. And so we know that narrative. So it's upon, it's incumbent upon people like you and your generation to unpack it and disrupt it and say, the model minority myth is very dangerous. But to your second point regarding funding, the model minority myth, believe it or not, is a major reason why there's very little funding towards uh, anti-Asian racism work. And I'm saying that as someone who is very committed to this work. The reality is that it's this, and and I'm trying not to use complicated language, right? I want to just use very, very simple language. There's something called, so if you you think about a foundation, right? A foundation is uh, an entity that funds like projects and programs, okay? So let's say the Ford Foundation or the WT Grant Foundation. These foundations are made up of, um, of, of individuals who make decisions to fund. If those individuals uh, view Asians as being model minorities and therefore not requiring assistance that they need and deserve, then why fund them? That quiet form of racism is called institutional and organizational racism that we don't talk about. And that's a little harder to unpack, but make no mistake that that form of racism has a lot to do with why funding is so weak in our community. The other thing, I was on a call with Grace Meng's office yesterday, and she's the House, um, she, she's the House Congresswoman on the Appropriations Committee who authored the House side of the anti-Asian resolution. And what I've learned was that although there is a need to raise awareness through a resolution and to, you know, and to generate funds to do the work, um, we're just not sure if they're going to get enough votes to then do the things that we need to do. And a big part of that is because of exactly what you just said, Kat. We don't know, well, actually we do know, we know, or we assume to know that Asians are not a vulnerable population. So why, why help them? And the other thing too, and a very simple mathematical issue is, is we don't really have the numbers. We make up 5% of the entire United States. So in terms of political capital, that's an issue too. Okay, does that make any sense, Kat? Question coming in from Jenny Tan, which is a more tactical question. Jenny, do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Sure. Hi, guys. I'm Jenny. Um, so the comment or thoughts I have um, that I want to post to the group is something I've personally been struggling with uh, for a long time in my life, where witnessing Asians sort of being guilty of um, uh, being racist towards Black and Browns. So, you know, I witnessed it within my family, especially within... Mm-hmm older generations. I have family members who married black and brown people and seeing the extended family having a huge problem with it versus when I married a white person, my family was not nearly as reactive. Mm. So I do think it is important, you know, to sort of look inwardly as well to there is a bit of that generational, I think, trauma that has that Asian people has against Blacks and Browns uh, historically, and I do think that's why it's so important for everyone, you know, on the chain doing the work that you're doing, especially for the younger generation, because we have to stop that dialogue 
within ourselves and making sure that especially the older generation perspective doesn't continue to get passed down. Uh, and I'm doing all the work that, you know, this generation is doing. So the question that I have is, you know, and that's something I've struggled with is how to have that conversation within my family or within my own Asian communities when I um, not just hear these to say that don't subject me to, you know, this language that I don't tolerate, but uh, uh, to stop sort of like that type of thinking at that level. Yeah, I think that's a, that's the exact kind of question that we really need to be talking about right now. And, and I feel you on that question very much. You know, I've seen the same thing within, within my own family, particularly older family members, and particularly doing the type of work that I do. It's something that comes up a lot. And I think there's a couple of things, you know, number one is thinking about the origins of it. And Peter has really, has really talked about it in a very thorough way. And, and why it's so important that we really remember that like when Asian Americans perpetuate racism, um, anti-Blackness, racism against like Latinx folks, that like a lot of it is around situating ourselves within that, within that model minority myth and like creating that almost distance or adjacency to whiteness. It means that we also really need to have those conversations in a way that is, that like creates accountability, but is also like creates understanding. And I think that the best way to do that is through close connections, right? It's the same way that we have difficult political conversations. It's the same way that we have any difficult conversations, like being confrontational is, you know, I've certainly, I've certainly done it myself, but it hasn't been effective. Um, and I think probably most of us who've tried it that way have found mm-hmm. it to not be. Um, but I think that like trying to both create the understanding and try to, you know, help folks understand like what are the origins of like where those attitudes are coming from, how are they harmful, and like what do we actually need to be building instead? And using that to build towards actual accountability is a really important thing to do. I also think that it's really important to do that work on an organizational level and not just an individual level. When I think about that, it's to me the question is how are organizations that represent communities of color. So like my organization, how are we standing in solidarity with other organizations that are led by folks of color and work with communities of color? How are um, we standing up on issues of policing in the black community, for example? And how are we then talking about that with the community members that we serve and that it's really important that we actually take a strong stand and say like, this is why we're doing these things. This is why we can't accept racism within our own community against other communities of color. And this is like what we need to be really clear on what we're, what we're trying to build together. The New York State APA task force, which is the task force of the New York State legislators, we're on the advisory committee of that. And one of the things that we've been doing is having conversations with different organizations across the state around this exact issue and really intentionally bringing in communities of color like across the spectrum to have these conversations and just acknowledging up front like that they will be uncomfortable, they will be difficult, you know, hate will not be accepted, but that like we actually have to dig ourselves into a place of sitting with the discomfort of these things if we're going to begin to actually undo them. And and I think that those are things that we really need to uh, start doing more and more. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a uh, Jen, Jenny's question is a great question to end this uh, really just wonderful and timely webinar on. Um, 
changing adult mindset takes a lot of work. It's, it's extremely hard work. Um, and, and then you add on top of that, changing a parent's uh, mindset. And I think you're, you're gonna open up a whole can of worms. It's not easy work, it's persistent work. And, and, and I wanna end on that note. Uh, we have to be persistent in addressing the issues of anti-Asian racism. To Jenny's question, you know, even that question, we have to unpack it. And, and I don't know, Jenny, if you were on the call earlier, but we did talk about this a little bit. Uh, there are two dominant narratives happening right now simultaneously. Uh, on the one hand, you have Asians as, as, as one who tends to favor whiteness and also favor from whiteness, okay? So that's the question. That, your question comes from that narrative. Um, and that narrative is actually very real and we need to disrupt, dismantle and be persistent. Okay, so that's, that's, that anti-Asian work needs to happen there or anti-blackness or anti-whatever work, it needs to happen. But then let's talk about the other narrative, a narrative, a narrative that often doesn't receive a lot of airtime. But this is a narrative that's very, very much reflective of the newer, uh, younger uh, Asian American demographic. One in which you have people who aren't yellow, who are brown, who don't identify with yellow, who identify with brown, who aren't wealthy, who are actually identifying with poor and low income. Very, very complicated uh, identities, right? As Asian Americans. And these individuals are fighting for justice. They're fighting for social equity. They're fighting to stop and stem and, and curb racism. And so what we have to know is that that narrative, we need to build on that narrative. The media isn't going to talk about that narrative. It's incumbent upon us to keep building upon that narrative because it's out there. And the more we build on that narrative, the less we're going to see a narrative of Asians as whites dominating this country. And it is, it is through that uh, action where, where mo the model minority myth will eventually just kind of erode. That's my personal belief. Um, you know, I know we don't have time to get into this fully, although we could talk about this for a full another hour. You know, Diana asks about how anti-Asian discrimination can be addressed from a policy perspective. And we can go into all of that in a, in a part two. But I think exactly what Peter said, the start to that is, is really dismantling and disrupting that narrative so that we are actually showing the, the work that um, young people like Kat, that you know, social justice organizations working in the Asian American space are doing, um, that we actually highlight the, the vast diversity of our community and of our experiences and the real issues that we are facing, and we begin to really disrupt that myth um, and build like our own narrative that that becomes the dominant narrative and shows the the vastness of our community. And that's ultimately how we're going to impact the individual change, but that's also how we're gonna impact change at a policy level too. I wanna to thank Peter and Carlin so much for being on the call, for all of you who've participated. This is such an important issue and obviously incredibly timely. And I really appreciate you all coming together and having the conversation. So thanks so much. Have a great weekend. I'll make sure to post this on the event page and online for folks who want to revisit any of the conversation. And again, um, I'll post the resources that Peter sent forward. I really recommend that you do the Hollaback training. It was fantastic. And Peter, thank you so much.